Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. Uh, two great guests this week, two conversations I really, really enjoyed. First up is Austin Murphy. He is a long-accomplished sports journalist and author, and for many years was a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. On Christmas Day, The Atlantic published his essay titled, I Used to Write for Sports Illustrated, Now I Deliver Packages for Amazon. And that piece is where Austin Murphy discussed his transition in age 57 from writing for SI to working as a driver for Amazon. We talk about that piece, why he wrote it, and what is in the future for Austin Murphy. Following Austin is Daniel Dale. He is the Toronto Star's Washington Bureau Chief covering U.S. President Donald Trump's administration and other stories in the United States. Uh, Daniel Dell has just been remarkable and has gotten remarkably well-known in the U.S. for his Trump checks, where he basically fact-checks the President of the United States in real time. Um, again, a fascinating conversation with him. Uh, but I want to be transparent with the audience. Be forewarned. Um, you know, it, it, that, that interview is certainly critical of Donald Trump critical of his falsehoods and lies. So if that's not something you want to hear, I, I totally understand that. But if you're interested in how Daniel Dale does his job and the, sort of the transparency that he tries to do in real time, uh, check it out because I think you're going to really find it interesting. So Austin Murphy up first, then Daniel Dale coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. Austin Murphy is an accomplished sports journalist and author and for many years was a senior writer at Sports Illustrated where we worked together. On Christmas Day, The Atlantic published his essay titled, I Used to Write for Sports Illustrated, Now I Deliver Packages for Amazon, where Murphy discussed his transition at age 57 from writing for Sports Illustrated to working as a driver for Amazon. That piece, as uh, the kids would say, went viral. And Austin Murphy joins us now on the Sports Media Podcast. Austin, welcome, and let us start here. Why did you write this piece? Nice to hear your voice, Richard. I'll get into that, but I wanted to remind you uh, that you were my editor at, uh, I think it was the Vancouver Olympics, and you were always trying to, <laughs> always trying to get a little, always trying to squeeze the turnip, and you know, I think I had been at the snowboarding venue, and you're like, hey, can you babysit this hockey game tonight? It's, it's Canada, Czech Republic. If there's an upset, uh, we'll need you to you know, file 750 work, no big. And, um, and so... That's, the upset is not happening. It's a little closer than I like. I might have, might have had an adult beverage. I don't know, in the second period or third period, and then I get the text from you, hey, we want you to write anyway, regardless. So um, <laughs> thanks for that, by the way. Uh, I, thought, I thought it came out very well, all things considered. So, yeah, you know, even back then, the, the writing was on the wall in terms of, like, just the, the business model. Um, uh, you know, I had already survived more layoffs than I can remember. I think I made myself valuable by being a kind of a utility player with, with some versatility. Um, but, it, you know, when my number did come up uh, a couple of years ago now, a year and a half ago, I wasn't, you know, there had been time to, there had been time to sort of learn to grapple with it. I mean, friends were going left and right. And I wasn't surprised. I was 50, 56 at the time. And so it was more about what's uh, too early to get into the retirement. You know, so how am I going to reinvent myself? I had always been a little bit of an accidental sports writer. And so was interested. I took a, a course in political speech writing. 
uh, have gotten limited traction in that. Um, and, uh, and then I was freelancing. And when we went to re- refinance this loan, as I mentioned in the Atlantic piece, the, the lenders, the bankers were courteous enough to not laugh in my face when I talked about my freelance writing income, but they said, no, we're going to need, you know, you need to demonstrate, uh, you know, we were just a little short of the mark. And so, uh, I needed a W2 job and ended up, uh, taking the first one that came along and I'm kind of digging it. Hmm. So, okay. Uh, and that, that's a, that's, I, I appreciate you giving me the, the backstory on that and your, you know, the issues that happen to you are something obviously that happens to people in America and Canada every day, but you made a decision to write about it. And I think one of the reasons, Austin, this is my take. One of the reasons this piece struck a chord was that you didn't necessarily have to be a sports writer or a journalist to relate to it. It was about somebody in their fifties who was trying to reinvent themselves professionally and finding that what they previously did, it wasn't as easy to get a job as it once was. And that's something all of us have to deal with. So, so again, I mean, did you, 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 you're a writer by heart, so that's probably, you wanted to put this on words, but you think that's why, do you think it's why that, do you think that this is why the piece struck a chord was that so many people can relate to it beyond journalists? For sure. Now, as far as why, I mean, I have been, you know, writing for Men's Health, writing for the LA Times, writing for, I did a piece for SI.com. Um, I'm writing for my very strong local paper, um, the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. It's just that nobody is offering me a staff job. Um, right. And I've, like, I've, I interviewed for some marketing position. Uh, where I think their main business was uh, some locally jarred pickles. Um, and I, I did get that job because, you know, I didn't, I, I just didn't have the skills or the background in marketing or SEO optimization. And I was like, well, I could learn probably pretty quickly. But it, it's been, if it wasn't humbling enough, you know, in the, in the old gig at SI, sort of bowing and scraping the, uh, for the athlete's time and waiting for three and a half hours for Des Bryant to show up. Um, it has been a fresh dose of humiliations uh, in this, but it's, it's fine. Now, as far as, and, and that's part of what the irony or the, what makes this, I don't know, a little bit wonderful about the Atlantic piece was that I think it got more traction than anything I've ever written for SI, at least in terms of the social media response. Now, obviously, if you write wow. a cover story on, you know, Auburn, Oregon, um, more people, more eyeballs are going to see that. But for sure, there it just turns out there is this invisible army of us out here whose skill sets are suddenly or not so suddenly obsolete or far less relevant than than we wish they were and it's a struggle um and so people related the um i want to ask you about the process of writing it um you're in the midst of writing a piece about yourself which you've done before i mean you've written best-selling books you've written pieces at sports illustrated where you put yourself in there but this is going to be a whole different ball game austin you're 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 sort of putting your personal life out there for people to either say, hey, thanks for that, or for people, you know, whatever the reaction would be. Um, can you recall just sort of what your thoughts were as you were writing the piece, and did you have any expectations, either good or bad, 
after you sent it to the Atlantic? You know, I, I think that whatever enemies I've made in my life or in my career, hopefully there aren't that many. I can think of a handful. Um, you know, this, this is definitely giving them reason to cheer. It's like, look at this guy. I mean, I'm not going to, this isn't a, this isn't a permanent situation. Um, so I was making myself, it's almost a cliche now. Um, you know, you make yourself vulnerable or at least I was super candid about, about this. I think, I mean, I wasn't even telling people in my social circles, you know, I wasn't even telling acquaintances just because I I'm, I have seven siblings and I hadn't even told all of them just because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not what people want to hear. Uh, my, my old man, my dad is 88 and he's still, he's still angry at the magazine for letting me go. And this wasn't exactly the comeback that he had envisioned for me. And I'm trying to tell him, no dad, this, this is a good thing. You know, we'll bounce back. And, um, I, uh, I got over it. I mean, I know what's going to be a compelling story. And so I, I, I have been reading my Joseph Campbell as part of my mid career, you know, writing boot camp, And I had, I had boned up on a lot of the, the works of Joseph Campbell, who the mythologist who talks about, you know, you need to, on the hero's journey, you become a nihilist to the self. And it means kind of letting go of your ego. And that, that's what this story does. Awesome. What is your day-to-day at Amazon? What do you specifically do? So I live in uh, Petaluma and I'm driving, um, I'm driving, depending on traffic, to uh, 40 minutes, 50 minutes to a warehouse in Richmond uh, on the other side of the bay in the East Bay. There is this scramble every morning um, uh, for a, a decent van. Like we have this fleet of vans and if you have a, if you have a good van like I do today, it can make your or break your day if you if you have a van where maybe the front door creaks or crunches or uh, if it doesn't have one of those step ups um, if it doesn't have a work working back cam like a rear view mirror so you, you know because there's a ton of reversing and k turning and u turning anyway you get yourself a good van then you head to the warehouse you get your um, your itinerary you figure out where you're going to be that day. You um, pull into the warehouse, we queue up and pull in, and it's, you know, it's, it's game time. You are loading the truck, and how you load your, your bag, each bag has 20 or 30 parcels. Um, I'll go out, like today I'm out with 260 parcels. I have 160-odd stops. Um, and you got to load them correctly, or you'll be all day searching for, you know, like a little envelope. Um, hmm. we're coming off, coming off a of peak season where, you know, it was a lot of 10 hour days. Um, and now I'm able to get through the route in eight hours. Um, crank, crank tunes, listen to sports talk radio. It's funny. I was listening this morning to Murph and Mac on KNBR, uh, the big sports talk radio station. And they were, you know, they were chopping up the, the national championship game. And I, I had actually... I remembered at least two seasons where they had had me on their air after an all-nighter, and I was sort of catatonic and and doing the post-national championship game interview. And this morning I was listening to them while 
you know, fighting through the hairball that is traffic on 80 as, as you approach Oakland. Well, that's, I imagine that's surreal listening to those guys, uh, having been on that station did, um, I want, I did want to ask you what, what has been the reaction of your Amazon colleagues who read this and maybe even more interesting, your bosses who I would imagine either you gave the heads up that this was coming or if not, they, they quickly found out this piece existed. You know, um, I just got a, a couple of like my supervisor said when I came in the next time, uh, my next shift he said i didn't know i didn't know you write wrote for sports illustrated man another of my supervisors i said yeah <laughs> uh for quite a while um and we kind of left it there uh char- another another of the supervisors is uh is taking online journalism classes and so we have a little bit more to talk about but it hmm. sort of came and went came and went with my crew i don't know what's going on in um the upper echelons of the company. Uh, I'm sure they saw it, but nobody, nobody reached out to me. Yeah, that's actually not a bad sign as well. Um, what, uh, if you can, can you talk about whether this particular piece has led to other inquiries or writing assignments? Yeah, it's been great. I mean, not just, and this has happened. I've, I've had people on LinkedIn um, offer me, consulting work. Uh, I had a woman from a gambling website um, who said that their CEO had said, uh, we should hire this guy. And I, I'm, it's not uh, it's not sort of my line of work, but I thanked her. Um, and mostly just a bunch of editors have, have leaned in to, you know, either congratulate me or say, hey, let's, let's work together. So, I mean, I'm... You know, one, another of the reasons that I wrote it is because that's my purpose on the planet. And I'm, you know, you never have to retire from writing. Uh, this is something that I'll always do. So the, you know, I guess the end game is to, you know, to get on staff somewhere. And how you do that is get freelance pieces, pieces first and, you know, and hit them into the gap for extra bases and get more work. And then somebody figures why not let's let's just bring this guy on one hope also i want to ask you about ageism in the sports media but i want to preface this by saying first and foremost the ageism is far worse for women than men the ageism is worse for people of color than white males and these are two white males talking right now so let's sort of just be (laughs) honest and get that out there with with within that though you have an interesting perspective in that you were laid off by Sports Illustrated uh, at a certain age. I'm not saying they laid you off because of your age, but you were laid off at a certain age. And then you were able to sort of see that opportunities out there for someone with your experience are different than someone perhaps in their 20s who could who would sort of take a job perhaps at a much reduced salary. Have you, in this last year and a half, do you have any thoughts on ageism in the sports media and what you've seen firsthand? I mean, I, I would, I have not used the expression. Um, I have like a, a lot of people responding to my Atlantic story on Twitter have, have hashtag, hashtag ageism. Um, it's, it's a blend of factors. Like I, as I, I, I just, uh, 
you know, the kids coming up now are really, they're, they're, the digital natives are able to tell stories a number of different ways. They're really comfortable. I have an Instagram account. I've never posted to it. Uh, I intend to soon. Um, you know, my, my Twitter <laughs> game, my Twitter game is, is so, so, um, and I just feel like, you know, it's, it's ageism, but I, 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 I was so, um, so maxed out doing the SI job, uh, to the standard that we always were, were under pressure to do it and to write more for the website. And I just somehow did not learn those skills. And it wasn't because people weren't telling me it was important to learn them. It was just that I kept not getting laid off uh, without really learning them. Um, and now I'm out here in the workplace, and it's, it's, it's a shortcoming. Um, I also think, you know, I think people might, people might expect me to, to, to be asking for, X when I'd be happy with half, you know, 0.5 X in terms of salary. I, um, I'm much, I'm more interested in, in just having the work now than, um, uh, you know, than what, what I'm going to get paid for it. Um, having, you know, having had to scramble for work for a while now, um, I have that appreciation, but man, I have sent so many cover letters out. Uh, and I, I think these are these are really well crafted. Like I, I would defy these search committees or hiring person to you know to come up with a better cover letter. Just the and and just sending them into the void. You know, no no, no callback, no interview. Just uh, thanks anyway. I um, maybe I need to like have my resume professionally. Uh, you know, go, go to one of those resume consultants, but, but as it is now, you know, making a, an okay chunk doing this. Um, and we got our loan and so I'll do this until I'll, yeah, I'll do it until I'm good at it or I'm really good at it. And it's, it's actually kind of challenging. (laughs) The, I want to, um, I want to ask you a couple questions about some of the people who in the course of your career, um, I would connect you to as subjects. Um, and I think you may disagree with me, but you know, when I think of your writing, obviously in addition to your profiles and college work, I really think of Lance Armstrong. I, I mean, I think you were the chronicler. I think of you as the chronicler of the Tour de France for Sports Illustrated when the Tour de France was of massive interest to the American public. Uh, what are your impressions of Lance Armstrong now? You know, you've seen him... Post apology, um, you know, he was actually interestingly enough recently in the news that he was sort of saying, I guess he was sort of wondering out loud how Alex Rodriguez sort of has reinvented himself and and Lance has not. But Lance is doing podcasting; he's still putting himself out there. I I would take any um, you know free association from you in terms of what you make of Lance <laughs> Armstrong in tw- in, t- in 2019. I was just talking about this with my wife. Uh, who said, what's Lance doing now? And I, I honestly didn't know. I, I know he's staying in shape and podcasting. I know that um, he uh, did he settle with Floyd or did he lose that lawsuit? He ended up having to write a check to Floyd. Um, yeah, I think he settled yeah. settled somehow. Yeah. yeah um, so my take on that is I think Lance has just got 
more time to wait before he makes his comeback before the you know the country and the world has have decided that his sins uh in the grand scheme of things are you know not um you know not that epic i felt like they just you know from the get go i don't i think they they won that first tour in 99 and and the power of that story was so great and the whole you know half the peloton was dope back then and they just had to start lying about it early on and then they were riding a tiger and they didn't know how to get off um i felt like at some point he needed to stop uh, much earlier than he did he needed to stop digging in and just let go and apologize you know go on go on the talk shows like you grant and um and abase himself and he'd be further along but he didn't have it in him he's proud um you know, in terms of, I did feel sort of hitched to his wagon. Um, I was fortunate to be our cycling rider during his reign, and it was a hard-earned currency to to sort of go over uh, to Europe and get to know not just the the U.S. Postal Service team, later Discovery, later Radio Shack. Uh, but other European teams and find the English speakers or find a translator and cultivate relationships with other riders uh, and team directors and get a handle on the tactics of the sport. I felt like that was my job. And I, I, I was proud of a lot of the stories. And of course, Lance, it was a quid pro quo, you know, he was going to get the cover. So there was a lot of, a lot of years there where Rick Riley and I, or just me would end up in his hotel room on this, you know, on the Saturday night before they rode triumphantly into Paris. And he would give us the down low on, you know, the, the, the great moments in the race. So we'd have that inside scoop. And I thought I was really proud of those stories until it became clear that it was just half the story. You know, there was this whole subterranean, uh, universe, the secret race, um, that I, that I hadn't gotten. And I felt like I made amends in my career and I was pretty forthright with readers that I missed it and perhaps had been overly generous. I think I was one of the earlier, uh, North American writers, um, to, to ask the difficult questions. Certainly there were more of them in Europe. Um, anyway, you know, you know, you know, that story. Yeah. Um, that's it. I mean, I, 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 you, Bonnie Ford, there were a couple others who I feel like were at least early, um, in that skepticism in North America. Her, her pieces were amazing. You covered college football too, Austin, for, I mean, before even I was at Sports Illustrated, I think I can remember reading pieces that you had done at least on college football subjects. So you, you know, the sports always had money or big money in it. But over the course of your tenure covering college football, I mean, you watched it sort of explode in terms of the, you know, billion-dollar industry or whatever it's in now. Was it always um, – did you enjoy college football from the beginning to the end of your career? I don't want to say – I don't want to romanticize it like it was something different when you first started, but did the access get tougher at all, even at SI, or was was it always still the case even at near – your end of your time at SI, where if you sort of dropped the Sports Illustrated name, 
you 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 know the the kingdom would open and you'd be able to get to <laughs> so I, I my first uh i i was hired at sports illustrated as a reporter you know the bottom rung editorial position in april of 84 um i had graduated from colgate in the previous um previous may and written for a couple of small papers and I joke that my first week at Sports Illustrated was the high watermark of Sports Illustrated, of Time Incorporated. You would, you know, it was the 20th floor of the Time Life building uh, at the corner of 50th and 6th Avenue, looking across at Radio City Music Hall. And it was, it was, that was a hell of a place to be at that time in my life. And I mean, that summer, not too many months later, they flew the whole staff out to Los Angeles for the Olympics. Uh, we, we went in three shifts and stayed on a four-star ocean liner that was docked, you know, in, uh, because they were just, they were awash in money. Um, yep. And so there, there's been this, you know, slow, there was this slow downward trajectory since then. Uh, they merged with... Well, there was the, the 2000 merger, obviously, with AOL, which meant that we all had to work another 10 years um, of our lives. Thanks, Gerald. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I was my, – my big break out of the fact-checking bullpen was hockey. Uh, nobody could write hockey to Mark Mulvoy's satisfaction. He was going through hockey writers um, and because he had he – had, that had been his beat when he was a writer. So I was called down the hallway and asked what I knew about hockey. I lied and essentially ended up commuting to Edmonton for the next three years from New York city. Uh, and then was switched, switched to college football. I remember covering, uh, I think my first championship game, Alabama. Yeah. Alabama stunned Miami, a swaggering Miami team. It was early 90s, and uh, it was down to the Sugar Bowl. It was an upset. Gene Stallings won a title, and then they, Alabama went into a, went into a tailspin um, and then came back hard, and now it looks like their trajectory has changed again. But as far as the money in the game, it always, it always struck me as, you know, it's, it's essentially it's professional, um, more so lately. Right. I, I thought it was... You know, I thought when Cam Newton came through, and it became it was, it was very clear that Cam had, you know, Cam had basically uh, Cam's dad had been offering his services to the highest bidder. They, you know, they didn't even pretend, nor, nor honestly should they have. I think, uh, I think where things have gone in the direction of paying athletes, or at least stipends, uh, that's that's proper. Um, and yeah, I. I I suppose I miss it. Um, access. Oh, but my point earlier about, you know, where we've been and where we're going, I think that the, the marquee of SI and, you know, the doors swinging open, it felt like the smaller the town, the further from a large metropolis, for instance, you know, at Clemson, at Auburn, um, there was a red carpet rolled out. There was an appreciation of, uh, in some, in some redoubts, uh, it was still a big deal. And in other places, you know, you had to wait your turn with everybody else and, and really scratch and claw for access. And I think that was mm-hmm. more the more the story toward the end. Uh, just, and it was more about your own relationships um, rather than, um, you know, the cachet of the magazine. 
Here's the last one, and this is not necessarily a uh, a media-driven question, but you're in an interesting position that I think a lot of us may be in. You worked for Sports Illustrated for a long, long time, and as part of that job, obviously, um, you know, there were 401ks, and, you know, you were hired in the days, Austin, where they actually had something called a pension, which is amazing. <laughs> um, but so it's interesting to me in that, you know, you – at a certain point, you will be able to cash that money. It, you know, it's not like you didn't yeah. save, but but you're in this like kind of hiatus world where yeah. you're not old enough at retirement age, right? You're not 65. At the same time, um, you do have this money sitting out there. Has that? I I I don't think you're. I think there's a lot of media people who may be in your positions who find themselves, you know, laid off at 52, 54. Is it? Yeah. I don't know how to ask this, but is it just odd to know that at a certain age? You know, you do have retirement savings, yet you can't really get to it because you're not ready to retire. Yeah, it's this, uh, I'm, I'm in a, you know, you could call it an uncomfortable um, limbo or uh, what's the, ca- where, where, do, where do Catholics believe you go if you're not in heaven and you're, oh, you went to purgatory, my friend. Uh, that, that's Holly Walnuts <laughs> talking about purgatory. It's this. Uh, I thought it yeah, was Walmart. It's, it's, Sorry. <laughs> It's this nether region. I mean, I got a call from after the Atlantic piece came out from one of our former colleagues, and it actually annoyed me a little bit because he um, he accused me essentially of this being uh, a shtick, and I was like, no, uh, you don't, you don't, you know, you're not intimately familiar with what's going on uh, with my finances, and so you know. <laughs> what am I supposed to be apologize or be embarrassed that this is where I am? Well, I don't. To your, another point that you've made is that it's a little bit of a first world problem in that I am, co- you know, there, there is this nest egg, um, uh, a right. few years down the road, um, it's just too early to get into it. And it's forcing me to write about different things, stretch, learn new, learn new skills. And it's actually been, I, I honestly don't know if I, if I would have done it differently. I mean, hmm. I spent I spent a year in Hawaii um, <laughs> after I left SI. We did a one year home exchange, and I was over there trying to get a book project going. On I was embedded with a, a high school team on the North Shore. Um, I hadn't done enough homework. Uh, there just wasn't a market for another of these season with books. Um, something may come of it because. Um, but my last story for Sports Illustrated was on the Kahuku Red Raiders, this, this very interesting uh, team, uh, mostly Polynesian kids, a lot of Samoan, uh, of Samoan descent. Up on the North Shore, they are incredibly overachieving. Their arch rival, interestingly, uh, St. Louis, sort of a town and country rivalry uh, down in Honolulu, St. Louis, the alma mater of Tua Tonga Vailoa, uh, right. last seen laying an egg last night. Um, Anyway, there, I tried to get that going. So I, I've been sort of throwing a lot of things against the wall, and uh, that that did not stick. I thought I would throw that in there. Yeah, well, this is again, this is all first world stuff, but it doesn't make it any less interesting and um, and and relatable. Um, Austin Murphy, as I mentioned at the top, is a uh, is a longtime sports journalist and author. Just sort of type his name into any Google search engine, you'll see his. Uh, best-selling books, his uh, unbelievable work at Sports Illustrated. He was always a great colleague uh, for me to uh, to work with. Uh, 
I mean, he did file late at the Olympics, but other than that, I do, I do love <laughs> the guy. Uh, I was just, uh, I was slow. I, I, I came up uh, writing for a weekly, and all of a sudden, I know. You know I, I was, I was always trying to tell you, Austin. Happen. It's, it's, it's not 1992. You got to get this thing in. <laughs> um, and so he, the, we do this podcast, and, and if you have not checked this piece out, you should. It's, it's really, really compelling. And the piece is um, on the Atlantic. I used to write for Sports Illustrated. Now I deliver packages for Amazon, and it was the number one story on that website for a number of days. Um, I'm sure read at this point by now in the hundreds of thousands. And I have no doubt that you'll be reading more from Austin Murphy, whether that's a book in his future or other pieces. Um, Austin, I will stay in touch, but uh, it's good of you to take the time to come on this podcast as well as to uh, answer the questions I had for The Athletic. And uh, and I wish you nothing but uh, success heading forward. Thank you for your time today on the Sports Media Podcast. I wish myself nothing success finishing my route today. I have a hundred plus stops and that was my lunch break. And I will head out and Richard, it was my pleasure. Great to hear your voice, man. Yeah. Thank you, Austin. Daniel Dale is the Toronto stars, Washington bureau chief covers us president, Donald Trump's administration and other stories in the United States. He previously spent four years as a Toronto city hall reporter and bureau chief covering Rob Ford. That was the mayor of Toronto from start to finish. And he joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Daniel Dow, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me on, Richard. All right, Daniel, you were on this program once before. You were a big hit. This is, by the way, before your massive celebrity in the United States. So I really (laughs) appreciate your time now since I know it's much more valuable. Um, one of the things I have joked about on Twitter, as I know you have seen, is I, I, I have called you the, the most, you know, the most tired man in America is a Canadian reporter. Um, so I just want to start with this. You've been covering this White House now for a number of years. At a certain point, at a certain level, you must really enjoy the work. How much do you enjoy what you're doing right now? I, I really enjoy it. Um, I think it's, it's rare as a Canadian correspondent in Washington to feel like you're being useful in any way. Um, and my predecessors and, and other Canadians who are who are here now do do awesome work of various kinds. Like they write smart features, um, you know, they do lots of good stuff. Um, but you, you always just kind of feel very peripheral to the conversation. You know, people don't return your phone calls. You, you have very little access. Um, no one really pays attention to you in terms of you know the people who who quote unquote matter in Washington. Um, and so you know to have any kind of um, profile, like not just as an ego thing, but to feel like, you know, you're making any kind of difference, um, is, is great. Um, and there are things I miss about, um, what I was doing pre-Trump and what I would be doing if Trump were not around, um, you know, writing more in-depth stories and traveling more, um, talking to, you know, average voters, average citizens about, um, you know, how policy affects them or, you know, things going on in their, in their cities and so on. Um, but you know, every, everyone's paying attention to the, the Trump story. So to have a, you know, quasi prominent role in it, um, is, is really fun. So Daniel, I, I subscribe to the Toronto star. So I, I read your pieces here. My sense is though, that there are a lot of Americans who only know you from Twitter and know you from essentially fact checking often in real time when Donald Trump speaks. So I want to ask you a couple questions about that. Um, what is the background where you started using social media to fact check almost in real time the president of the United States 
especially when he gives an address or a campaign rally? So I don't remember exactly when I started doing it in real time. I remember I started doing it at all on Twitter in mid-September 2016, so pretty late in the campaign. Um, and there was a day in mid-September where I was just like, he said, I forget how many it was, but like he said, you know, 15 false things today, which I thought was a lot at that point. It's not anymore. Um, and, and it was sort of frustrating to me that this wasn't being treated as a story. Like some of these false claims, I, I'm sure some of them you could accurately call lies, um, were being noted by reporters on Twitter. But then if you were to read the story in their paper or on their website or, you know, watch the, the nightly news, it just wasn't there. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to make a list. Uh, and it was kind of crude. Um, you know, the fact checks weren't detailed. I just, I just made a list uh, and took a screenshot um, and put it on Twitter. And the response was really big. And so I, I did that for a couple of days. And, um, you know, I got, I got so much acclaim for doing really not very much. Like so many people were just so grateful that someone was doing this. Um, and from there, I think, I guess within a month or so, um, it evolved into trying to fact check him as he spoke. So, you know, as close to live as possible. And that um, people were even, I think, more appreciative of. I think there's sort of a power in, in immediacy. Um, it's like, you know, someone is, is challenging him as he talks, even though I'm not, you know, literally up in his face. And so, um, you know, the response was so significant that I thought from then on, I'm just going to do that in real time as, as often as I can. Uh, Daniel, as specific as you can, can you let the listeners know how you fact check and particularly how you do it in real time? You obviously have at this point, um, you know, I would say like institutional knowledge of a lot of the issues where falsehoods or lies may come. But there have to be times when some of this stuff is new, and I find you still doing it almost in real time. So, uh, like, do you have notes, like, in front of you? Do you have a laptop or an Excel spreadsheet? Like, how does it specifically work if you can get into the details? Yeah, so um, I, have a, I have a database. I have an Excel. It's a Google Docs spreadsheet with, with all the, the false claims he's made to date. Um, so, so many of them are repeated. Like, he repeats some of them literally... 75 times. He, he must be over 100 for some of them, but I, I, I shouldn't say that definitively. Um, you know, and, and so once he says it like five times, I just know it. Um, and so I can check that, you know, pretty much literally instantaneously. And then so many of the other ones, honestly, are such uh, obvious lies, or they're so obviously suspicious um, that, you know, I, I'll just immediately Google it. And, and so many of them are, are so unsophisticated that you can find out that it's wrong within literally one Google search. Like he'll say, um, I don't know, you know, he'll, he'll make a claim about the unemployment rate or he'll say like uh, something he's been saying in the last couple of weeks is um, 80,000 people or 77,000 people um, were killed by fentanyl last year in the U S and fentanyl is a huge problem, but um, it's less than 30,000. And so that's something you can find with literally one Google search. And that, that's what I did. Um, and, and so the challenge is when, the lies are more sophisticated. Sometimes they're written into speeches by, well, I shouldn't, you know, I, I don't know who. Um, but on immigration, for example, we know that Stephen Miller, one of his aides, writes many of his speeches. Um, often there's a lot of deception there. And some of that deception is more sophisticated. And so that stuff I can't fact check in real time. Um, so I'll either uh, just quote it and say I'm not sure about it um, or just not not tweet it. Um, I'll look it up as soon as possible after and I'll, I'll do a fact check, you know, an hour later or, or a day later. Based on your statistics, what what is the 
what is the record for most lies in either a day or a month or or some kind of finite number? Um, I should know this. So, you know, I, I show the chart in front of me. I don't. I, I know the the record for any one month span. Although this is not quite a calendar month, was the one month before. Right. So that okay. So the the record for any one month span was the month before the midterms. So in the thirty one days before the midterms. Um, so up to, I believe it was November 4th, um, he made 815 false claims in 31 days. Um, so he averaged 26 false claims a day. Um, and the record for a calendar month was also that, that the, the October, so the full calendar month before the midterms, but I, f- I forget that exact number offhand. Um, but, but basically the period before the midterms, um, steadily leading up from like June 2018 through October, um, was by far the the worst period uh, for dishonesty of this whole presidency. I, I there are reporters who are reticent to use the word lie versus falsehoods or some other synonym. Um, you've I, I think if I'm correct about this, you, you've certainly used both. But I, I am curious as to your thoughts as to why you think that is, and maybe even it appears in headlines as falsehoods as opposed to lie. Is that is it an American thing? Is it an American journalism thing? Is it something else? What 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 is your thought on that? Well, I, I don't think it's a, a specific to America because I think we have some of the same reticence in Canada. Like even in Canada, I'm I, I think I'm the person who will use lie most frequently. I think a lot of it, it comes from sort of uh, uh, senior levels of media outlets, whether it's a, a TV station or a, a media or a newspaper chain or, or an individual newspaper. Um, I think many editors and certainly publishers and people on the business side, uh, like the, the owner, the CEO, um, see lie as, as opining, as editorializing, as a, as a departure from uh, journalistic standards of, of objectivity. Um, and my argument is that that's, that's, that's wrong. Um, I think uh, calling a lie a lie when it's a lie is, is is objective um i think you know our job as reporters is to tell the truth um and when the president says that the tariffs that he's bragged about don't exist he told the wall street journal what tariffs where do you see tariffs um or when he says that um the the head of the boy scouts calls him to to praise his speech to the boy scouts and then is forced to admit that no that phone call never happened i think objectively that's a lie and I think in, in any other context in our lives, like if our spouse said that to us or if our friend or, or son or daughter, we'd say that they lied to us. Um, and so I don't see why us you know, being reporters means we have to be less straight shooters than like, literally any other person would be. Uh, I think we should just tell it like it is when, when it's clear. So I think in some cases, um, you know, false claim is better because we don't know intent. But I think in, in a lot of cases... Um, the deceitful intent is so clear from Trump that I don't really have any qualms anymore about about using lie. Uh, Daniel, it's very clear that you have made um, a name for yourself in the states on this sort of Trump checks. What is your current relationship with the Trump White House in terms of access? In terms of how often you might hear from them? Uh, you know, they clearly see what you do. I'm sure they do not like what you're doing. And I'm curious as to how that has impacted the relationship, if it has. I, honestly, I have no relationship with them. Um, 
it's it's kind of funny. I mean, the only time I've dealt with them literally ever was when I got a, a scoop on something Trump had said about NAFTA. I, I got uh, I obtained off the record comments he had made to another media outlet and and was planning to write about them. Um, yep, so I had to ask the White House for comment, and that that was literally the only time. Like I I had to ask a, a colleague. Um, I, I was just sending DMs to people who cover the White House more directly. Um, and was like, do, do you have the uh, direct email addresses for like Sarah Sanders or, or Raj Shah or any of the, the, the deputy press secretaries? Um, and someone sent me some emails uh, and then they, they called me in that case. Um, otherwise, um, they just, the couple of times I've tried to get in touch with them for fact checks, they have not responded. Um, they don't uh, comment. They don't, you know, call or email me to complain about the fact checks. They just basically ignore me um, as White Houses usually do with uh, foreign correspondents, certainly Canadian correspondents. So it's, it's kind of a blissful existence. I mean, it would be great hmm. to, uh, you know, like people deride, uh, you know, so-called access journalism. I think having access would be awesome. Like, I would love to know, you know, what's going on behind the scenes and be able to break some of the stories that like Josh Dossie at the Washington Post or uh, Maggie Haberman at the New York Times, et cetera, are able to break. Um, but being, you know, sort of entirely separate from them and being able to sort of observe from the, from the outside um, is kind of kind of liberating in its own way. I can imagine. Do your peers, um, whether it's Haberman, you know, you just mentioned Josh Darcy at the uh, at the Post, um, you know, whoever Mike Schmidt, what New York Times, whoever you want to sort of consider your um, your peers in this world, do they consider you? Um, how do I sort of phrase this? Do they think you are too much, or do they think you are doing advocacy or opinion journalism? given your fact checks versus what they do. By the way, there could be an argument, I'm sure, by some who would who would say they're doing opinion or access or whatever kind of journalism. But I wonder, um, maybe it's a, it's really not a well-phrased question for me, but I wonder just how, how do your uh, peers or competitors see you from your viewpoint? Well, it, it's not exactly clear to me. I think um, some of them probably feel that way, like... Um, you know, I am taking liberties that reporters shouldn't take, et cetera. Um, but I think my, my, my sense is for the most part, um, they respect and, and value what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, I haven't met a lot of them, although I have met Josh Dossie, um, who's, a, who's a good guy. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the information is useful to them because they, you know, when you're busy, you know, uh, fighting for scoops and, and dealing with the, the day-to-day hubbub of the Trump White House, often they just don't have time to do some of this fact-checking. They, they want to get this stuff right. It's not that they don't want to. It's just that they're, they're swamped with, you know, uh, being their competitors. And so they appreciate that, that someone is doing it. Um, and I think they understand that, you know, pointing out when the president is not telling the truth is not advocacy or opinion. Um, and so I've, I've had some sort of Twitter battles um, over journalistic tactics, like uh, Maggie and I had a fight, uh, or, yeah, you know, I a, a, an argument, uh, I wouldn't say fight, um, but a, an argument uh, last year on Twitter about uh, how Trump should be interviewed. Um, and they, she was arguing that basically the role of, of interviewers is to just get him talking. And I was saying he should be challenged on, on his false claims. Um, so uh, there are professional disagreements like that, but for the most part, they've been, they've been pretty nice to me. I want to ask you what your experience is like on social media, because um, I would have to imagine that, I mean, listen, there are, there, are, there are people who are supporters of this president, honest supporters of the president, 
and I would think that they absolutely don't like what you are doing. At the same time, I have seen your Twitter feed. I follow you. I know there are a ton of people who really appreciate what you're doing. What so overall, what is your what is your experience like on social media, particularly on Twitter, where you are very active? Um, so I I do get a fair bit of vitriol. Um, I I'm one of those people who blocks pretty liberally. Um, I don't I don't think excessively, but if people are uh, jerkish, if they're if they're bigoted, if they're you know needlessly antagonistic, um, I don't think twice about it. If it's not a good faith criticism, um, I just get rid of them. You know, I'll, I'll either block or mute. And so a lot of the worst uh, offenders are just just gone for me at this point. Um, and I, for me, I think the the challenge at this point is um, in dealing with just the the well. You know, even people who have good faith things to say um, can be irritating or, or tiring. Um, I find that, you know, a lot of the stuff doesn't bother me during the day. But if I sort of, you know, go, if I go for dinner, if I relax and then I return to it at like midnight, um, even even uh, sort of little jibes can irk me in a way that they don't when I'm sort of in the in the, the, the heart of the day when I'm just in, you know, in, in the, the journalistic moment. Um, and so I, I try to check my mentions less. Um, I stopped engaging with people as much as I used to. Um, some of that's unfortunate, but I think it's, it's healthier to, to distance myself to some extent, just when there's this quantity of people trying to, trying to say stuff to me. Um, and sometimes I think of it like, you know, if you're in your office and, and people are just coming up to you, just saying stuff literally 24 hours a day, even if it's mostly nice stuff, um, in my, you know, it's going to get tiring. Um, you might want to tune it out. And so, uh, that's that's where I feel like I'm at um, some of the time, at least. In doing some re- in doing some research prior to interviewing you, um, I read an interview that you did, or maybe a speech that you did, where you said your your email inbox is a dark place, um, and I just wanted to know how so. What 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 do you mean by that? So I, I just get um, a fair bit of vitriol in my inbox. Uh, the act of fact checking Trump um, deeply angers some of his supporters um, who see it as uh, an act of disrespect towards them, toward even the United States. Um, so some of them are, are you know, racist, homophobic, um, just a- angry. Um, and some of them have more legitimate criticisms that they, they mix in with the, the nonsense. Like they'll say, you know, why don't you expend your energy uh, fact checking Canadians? Um, some of them will say, you know, you didn't do this for Obama or previous presidents. You know, why Why does Trump get special treatment? I think there's a good answer to that. Um, but, you know, fair, fair enough question. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I do get legitimate criticism, but um, a fair number of Trump supporters, you know, go out of their way to, to send me garbage as well. So I want you to answer that because one of my questions for you is going to be, um, you know, there is value, obviously, in talking to Trump supporters in terms of why they support him, um, even within the prism of him telling uh, falsehoods publicly. And a lot of a lot of people, um, I might even say arguing in good faith, would say, hey, this was not done for Barack Obama. This was not done for Bill Clinton. This was not done for Jimmy Carter. Why is it being done for our guy? What is your sort of one response to that? And two... Um, I, yeah, I, I, have you tried to, if nothing else, engage some well-meaning Trump supporters who might not, who might think that you are, um, I don't know how to phrase it, you know, sort of uh, picking on picking on Donald Trump far worse than you might other other um, other politicians. 
Yeah, I do. I do occasionally engage when when they ask questions in good faith, and there are there are people who do that. Um, my 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 basic answer is that we've never seen uh, Trump before. Um, we've never had a president lying with this frequency, and so I I, I would never defend uh, any previous president, you know, as entirely honest. You know, of course, George W. Bush lied. Of course, Bill Clinton lied. Barack Obama lied. Um, but if you talk to any presidential historian, they'll tell you that we've never seen this kind of daily avalanche of lies, big and small, lies about nothing, lies all the time, you know, speeches with with 20 false claims on a regular basis. Um, so I think it's it's the quantity more than anything that demands a new kind of coverage, um, because I think, you know, with Bush, for example, um, you know, uh, you can argue that the the deception about weapons of mass destruction, you know, is more important than any of Trump's lies. Um, but you can handle that with traditional coverage. Like, you don't need to to live tweet, fact check that. You don't need uh, to make a list of um, of of false claims. You know, there there was there were a couple very serious acts of deception that need that warranted deep scrutiny. With Trump, it's this avalanche that I think is unique. Um, and so I, that's, that's what I think demands this new kind of coverage. The other thing, though, is that, you know, if I could go back in time knowing that Trump was coming along, I, I would do this for other presidents just to show how compar- comparatively unique Trump is. So I wish I had the numbers for Obama, um, but it just didn't occur to, to anyone until the Trump presidency that this might be a model of coverage that we needed to use. And so if I'm, if I'm covering the president, um, you know, after the Trump era, if I'm still on this beat in some way, I would like to do it for the next president. Um, cause I think it would be, you know, valuable for history just to show how, how the different presidents compare. That's interesting. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. You, one of the things I really appreciate about you is you, we've certainly seen you on television, but, um, as you've gained, and again, I'll put this in quotes, uh, you know, as you've gained celebrity in political circles in the United States, I feel like you've still done a really good job of sort of balancing what your ultimate charter is as a journalist. Um, how, how have you how have you done that? Because that's not always the case. Sometimes people become uh, celebrity political journalists and it's more or this is my interpretation. It's more about uh, being on television and continuing to get that large television check as opposed to what ultimately got you that, um, you know, that, that initial, um, how do I phrase it? You know, so, so whatever sort of made you initially into a well-known person, which a lot of times is reporting and, and traditional journalism. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, for me, it's, it's, it's um, you know, remembering who, who pays me and what I'm, what I'm here for. Um, and what my role is. I think the, the biggest challenge on U.S. political TV is that the hosts tend to be so opinionated and they want you to have a, a take like them. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm a reporter. Um, I'm in a, in a bit of an unusual role. Um, you know, as a foreign correspondent, I have a bit more liberty than, you know, say, someone covering City Hall for the Toronto Star in Toronto. But, um, you know, I'm not a pundit. My role is not to opine. Um, you know, again, when I'm fact-checking, I don't think I'm opining. I think I'm, you know, doing doing basic journalism. And so, you know, for me, especially early on on US TV, the challenge was like um, how to please these producers and these hosts while not 
crossing the line because you want to be asked back, right? I, I don't, I tend not to get paid for, for TV. I don't get paid for MSNBC or, uh, or CNN. Um, mm. But you, you want to keep going on. Um, it's cool, you know, build your, your so-called brand, you know, people follow you on Twitter, et cetera. Um, but, um, you know, I just tell myself, like, just be who you are. Um, your job isn't to be like the shouty talking head. You can't match you know the the uh the 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 fire or the the argumentativeness of these other guests um and it's been gratifying like at least a few people said to me on twitter that they they value that i'm kind of like the the calm reasonable guy on those shows um and so if that's coming through to anyone then that's you know that's that's great that's what i'm striving for uh daniel i don't want you to lose any of these gigs but so i'm just going to freestyle this and you can go where you want um as much as I admire many of the journalists at CNN um, and MSNBC and, and Fox News, um, I have become such a cynic. And particularly, by the way, I, I want to cite CNN in that um, I, I – and people certainly from my Twitter feed know how I feel about Donald Trump. I'm not pretending on this podcast to think otherwise. It's not a Republican yeah. thing. It is a specific Donald Trump thing. That said, I think CNN is one of the reasons Donald Trump is president. I would put him I would put that organization in my opinion in the top 3 reasons why, given the run up to the election, given that I think even you said this, CNN essentially became Trump news, handing over hours of his broadcast rallies unfiltered. And to this day still Daniel in 2019, I believe ratings and sort of the news cycle of Trump, and he creates more news cycle than anybody else in my lifetime, I believe that trumps everything at places like CNN and MSNBC. And it makes me very cynical about at least the, the top management at that place where I think individual journalists have to sort of follow along or they're not going to be able to keep their gig. Um, so I don't really have a question for you. I would just like you to respond that like even someone like myself who loves journalism, I have become very cynical about these places. Should I be less cynical, or is my cynicism warranted? Well, I, I think it's pretty warranted. Um, I think they all, you know, all of these outlets have really good journalists. They do really good stuff. Um, but they did they did a lot of stuff wrong during the 2016 election. Um, you know, all of us are still doing stuff wrong now. And so, you know, uh, we I think it's incumbent upon all of us in, in the business to push back upon the depiction of media outlets as, you know, the enemy of the people or the opposition uh, or, or fake news. But I don't think that means that, you know, you can't have serious, real criticism of the way that, you know, media outlets are handling particular things. And, yeah, I think you can make a fair argument that a lot of what CNN did, especially during the election, you know, handing over airtime to them, um, you know, giving so much airtime to very deceptive, dishonest Trump surrogates, uh, et cetera, um, really helped him rise. That that that, that was a big factor uh, in him winning. So no, I don't I don't think that's unfair. All right, a couple more things, and then we'll get to we'll, we'll lighten this up here and talk about both some, a subject that is both of interest to us, and that would be the Toronto Raptors. Um, <laughs> how much you 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 are living in Washington now, but you are at, at, you are Canadian, and you are a Canadian correspondent, and you are a Canadian reporter who worked covering the Rob Ford. Um, administration, which um, probably prepared you well for the Trump administration. In your estimation, and from talking to your colleagues, Daniel, at the Toronto Star, um, where would you where would you put the trust between the Canadian public and the Canadian media right now? 
And are there any parallels to the U.S., or is it that a different relationship than compared to the, U- the U.S. relationship between audience and media? I think um, purely anecdotally, I haven't looked at the data on this. I think the, the level of trust is, is higher in Canada, um, and I think that's largely because our our um, our right, our, our conservative ecosystem is is different, um, both in terms of the nature of the conservative electorate and in the absence of a major right wing media ecosystem. Um, and you can make an argument that you know the mainstream media in Canada is right wing because so much of it is owned by by post media. Um, but you know that's not a, a, a Fox News style right for the most part. Um, it's it's not a Breitbart right. Um, you know, Sun TV, an attempt to sort of create a Canadian Fox, uh, was unsuccessful. Um, and so, um, in large part, people are stuck with the so-called mainstream media. Um, I think there are a lot of the same questions of trust. I think a lot of conservatives still see um, alleged left-wing bias. Um, I think a lot of liberals, as, as they do in the U.S., um, or people on the left see uh, pro-corporate or pro-powerful bias. So I think all the same criticisms exist, but I think as a lot of things in Canada, um, they're more muted. But I, you know, I wouldn't play down the, the problem entirely. And, and an example I go back to is when we at the Star um, wrote about the mayor of Toronto smoking crack cocaine and said you know, we'd seen a video of it, um, we commissioned a poll of our own subscribers, and half of them said that they didn't think that we were correct. They, they didn't believe us. Wow. Um, and, and that was a, a kind of wake-up call for us. Um, you know, so th- these aren't people who, who are inclined to hate us. They're paying for our paper. Um, but, but in this day and age, people aren't just going to believe you. Um, and so it's part of the reason why, you know, when I fact-check, I try to, um, you know, wherever possible, uh, include a screenshot with the data, include a link to the data, um, show Trump's own words rather than paraphrasing or quoting or telling people to trust me, because I think we're in kind of a show me era where even people of good faith, even people who aren't calling you fake news, um, everyone's just kind of skeptical. I think that makes sense. So I think, you know, the, the bar for trust is, is higher and we, we really have to earn it. One of the things, again, in um, doing some research on you, and you now get invited, obviously, to a lot of schools to talk. You know, in Canada, Ryerson uh, is a big university that has a really good journalism program. I'm sure this has happened to you in the states. Not to mention your um, your appearances on the CNNs and the MSNBCs and panels. And, and you talked about one of the things that I thought really hit on something important and part of trust building between. The public and the media involves demonstrating that journalists are human and relatable, uh, people who are doing the jobs as best they can, people in their communities. And I could not agree more because one of the things that's frustrating is, you know, so often, and I, this criticism is fair, but, you know, the criticism of the media is really more criticism of the cable television media that you see on television every day. It, it's that person is not the same as the reporter in Columbus, Ohio, who's doing investigative work on a corrupt uh, uh, company or an administration. And so I wonder from your end, how, how can journalists do that? How can how can they maybe sort of reeducate the public on what their charter and mission is so that at least people in their community understand that they are very similar to them? And that not every, you know, and that journalism, journalism is not, or journalists are not Chris Matthews or no disrespect to him like Jake Tapper, but they're really, at the end of the day, 
the person covering city council in Orlando, Florida? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think social media can really help uh, in a few ways. One of them, I think, is, is in allowing us um, a, a higher level of transparency in how we do our work. I think uh, David Farenthold from the Washington Post is a great example of how this can be done. Um, you know, rather than just presenting people with uh, a finished product for them to, to pick over, um, sort of take people into the process. Um, sometimes it's not possible, but I think w- where we can show people just how we're doing the shoe leather work, um, I think, you know, increases a level of trust um, and, uh, you know, shows people that we're, we're, really, we're really trying here. Um, you know, we're not just slapping this together, but, but undertaking often painstaking process, processes to get that information. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, I think part of it is acknowledging uh, errors transparently and honestly where we make them. Um, I think one thing that separates us from, from say, Donald Trump and, and many of the people in this administration is that when we get things wrong, um, our institutions are often very forthright about that. You know, we'll issue a correction. Um, we'll explain where we, where we went wrong. But I, I don't think we should just rely on, like, the formal newspaper correction. I think it helps build our credibility um, to tell people, you know, on Twitter or wherever, like, you know, I screwed up here. I'm sorry. Here's how I screwed up. Um, especially for me as a sort of self-appointed fact checker, it's embarrassing when I get things wrong because people come to trust me as like the, the, the facts guy. Um, so I try to be, you know, really upfront um, in telling people when I did that. Um, and then I think also um, even just showing glimpses of our, of our personality, um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't solve the problem, but I think, you know, even just tweeting occasionally, you know, about your favorite team or whatever, um, it's often a way of bridging gaps with people who, who may be skeptical of, you know, the, the editorial uh, ideological orientation of your paper, for example, um, you know, so I can banter about the Raptors with, you know, some uh, right-wing skeptic of the Toronto Star, um, you know, they'll probably hate me a little less. And so I think, you know, just showing our personalities, uh, being transparent, taking people into the work, I think those are three of the ways that we can, we can help bridge those gaps. Yeah, that's really, really well said. Um, okay, finally, is um, has the Toronto Star uh, informed you or committed you to covering the Trump White House through this next election? Is that for sure going to be your assignment? Well, um, they haven't told me otherwise. It just, you know, they, they haven't said that they're calling me back at any time. Um, and so you never you never quite know with the state of the, the news business, uh, you know, bureaus get shot and plans get changed. Um, but, but I assume that the plan is to, um, to have me here through the election. And then beyond that, um, no matter what they want to do, I'll have to, I'll have to figure out my own life as well. And so that's, that's my, my assumption at this point. Would you, um, in terms of, would the result of the election coming up, uh, let's, let's presume Donald Trump is running. There's, you never sort of, you know, you don't know until obviously it happens. But let's presume he is running on the Republican side. Um, would that, would the election, meaning the result of that, whether Trump wins or a Democrat wins, would that Im- impact what you want to do heading forward, or would that decision, or is that decision as to what you want to do with your life heading forward independent of the result of that election? You know, I'm really not sure at this point. Um, it's possible that I'll, I'll make the decision before the outcome of the election is decided. 
um, it's possible that um, I, I'll feel like I just can't do another four years of Donald Trump. We know that, uh, you know, his presidency, president, his terms are very much more likely to be exhausting terms than those of literally any other possible person who could who could possibly be president at this point. Um, so I don't know. I think it, it is possible that uh, just just the fatigue factor that comes with dealing with Trump uh, could play into it. But I guess I guess we'll see. We will make a ridiculous segue to the Toronto Raptors. Um, that is obviously of great interest to you. That is the team, the NBA team, NBA team that you follow. And of course, in my life here in Toronto, a team that I cover and talk about. So let's go back to the beginning of this, of this year, Daniel, when the DeMar DeRozan, uh, Jakob Pertl for Kawhi Leonard, Danny Green trade went down. What were your first instincts about that trade then? And what do you think about it now? I, I loved it uh, from the start. I tweeted right away, like, this is awesome. Um, and people were so upset with me. Um, and I, I actually felt bad having tweeted that right away because I, I'm a big advocate of like people seeing uh, professional athletes as more than just laundry, like not treating them as disposable, you know, commodities to, to perform for our pleasure. So I thought it was, it was really nice, uh, you know, after tweeting, like, this is awesome. Um, that, that people had such an attachment to DeMar, like DeMar, you know, I don't know him personally, of course, but, uh, you know, seems like an awesome guy, The the mental health stuff he did was, was fantastic. You know, he was so loyal to the team. Um, you know, he improved himself every year. Such a, he was such an admirable athlete. But uh, like from the start, I was like, what? Like Kawhi Leonard is going to be a Raptor. Um, and then, you know, I was shocked that, you know, they, they also got Danny Green, who's obviously so good, um, you know, without giving up uh, Siakam or Ananobi, um, you know, or a, whole, or a whole bunch of picks. And so, yeah, I was, I was enthused. And even my attitude then and now is like, even if uh, – we only have Kawhi for for one year. Let's just enjoy. Let's just enjoy this this ride. You know, this chance to, you know, to to possibly go to the champion, go to the championship. You know, make real noise. Doesn't doesn't come around very often, even if it only lasts for for a season. So you've got a chance to see them this year, and you know, the interesting thing about the Raptors is that we haven't really seen like their full team. Yet, when everybody's sort of healthy and cooking, we saw it a little bit, but as you know, Kyle Lowry and Kawhi Leonard have barely played together, and obviously Jonas Valanciunas has now been out for whatever, it's been four or five weeks. So the interesting thing about the Raptors is potentially we haven't seen the best of them. That is my sort of intro to ask you, when you look at the rest of the conference, um, do you think the Raptors at at their best are the best team in the Eastern Conference, or... Milwaukee, Boston, Philly, whoever else scare you a little bit. I, I think they're they're narrowly the best in the conference if they're if they're healthy. Um, but they could lose to any of those teams. Um, I think it'll be a real free for all. Um, you know, if Boston gets it together, um, Hayward, you know, does better than he's done in the first half. Um, you know, Rozier starts making some shots again in the playoffs. Kyrie's um, there. Yep. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, Boston's going to be going to be tough. Um, you know, Embiid is really tough, um, even if they have Valanciunas. I think I think Philly misses some of the shooting that it had last year, but they'll be tough. And then Giannis, like the Raptors, you know, that was a, a, a great win the other day um, in Milwaukee. But Giannis is is terrifying right now, and even with Kawhi and Siakam and Ananobi, like theoretically they should be positioned to 
to slow him down. But I thought they did a great job the other day, and he got what forty forty three points. Um, and so I think all you know, all those teams are going to be challenges. But hopefully, you know, you get a one seed and only have to face, you know, uh, possibly one of them. You know, let them let them battle it out with each other. So they they have a good shot. Yeah, having watched them play Milwaukee, and that was a great. I think this is actually the best win, win of the year a couple of days ago. Um, you really would like to avoid Milwaukee for as long as you can. Uh, you know, take yeah. your chances in the Eastern Conference Finals if you can get there. What was it like for you as a Raptors fan to sort of watch LeBron James year after year knock Toronto out? Now, you know, I live here. You've obviously lived here, and. Um, there's thoughts about that. You have to sort of sometimes remember and put it in context that LeBron James has knocked everybody out, not just the Raptors, but everybody for years in the Eastern Conference, but particularly in this city. Um, you know, that was the ghost that sort of, ne- you never sort of, you know, you'd wake up every every April and he, he would always be there. As a Raptor fan, that must have been frustrating, 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 frustrating. Yeah, it, it was rough. Like, I, I love LeBron, and I'd go, I, you know, I'd, I'd be really upset for a day or two, and then I'd go back to, to cheering for him the rest of the playoffs. But, uh, yeah, it was rough. And the thing is that they just never, like, it was like you'd have entire series of the Spurs game they just had where they're just slaughtered. Like, they, it's like they, you know, they just cannot play basketball. Like, they, they could not defend, you know, the, they would run, like, the same LeBron Richard Jefferson, Matthew Delvadova, you know, action over and over, and the Raptors just had no no clue how to handle it. So it was it was frustrating. But I think the the only time that I was like really upset and really thought they had a chance was last year. Um, I was at that game one where you know they were leading and then just could not make a shot, and Valanciunas couldn't make layups, and Fanny had you know opportunity at the buzzer, and you just it was it was just so sad because you knew like that was the game. Like kinda of like Cleveland's game one in the finals, you know, the famous J.R. Smith game. It's like, okay, if they win that, it's a series, you know, and if you now that you've lost it, it's just over. Like you know they're just toast. Um so that that was really sad. You were at so you were at that game when LeBron made that ridiculous left wing shot late to bury them in game one? Oh my lord. No that that uh oh yeah the the, the fadeaway over Ananobi. Yeah I was there. Yeah. Oh my God! Wow, that must have been rough to watch. What? Sorry. So this is this is the last one on this, and this is kind of interesting to me. Um, I don't know if you would be interested interested in this, or your people at the Toronto Star have even broached it. But I I find the idea fascinating, and I actually think would be really rewarding for readers. You live in Washington, so you know that recently Chelsea Janes of the Washington Post, she was the Washington Nationals reporter for four years or so. Actually, guest on this podcast a couple weeks ago. Um, has made a career switch and she is going to be covering the 2020 presidential election. I have no doubt she'll be, she'll do a great job. Anybody who's in journalism understands that if you can cover a major league baseball team year after year, you can essentially do anything given that grind. And I think it would be really, really interesting, Daniel. I don't know if you would want to do this, but even if it was a one-off for you to write a Raptors feature or for you to cover a Raptors game, I think that would just be an interesting journalism exercise for you. And it would be awesome for the readers just to read has have you ever broached that? Has your paper ever broached that with you? And if not, is that something you'd be interested in? In even as a one-off? Thanks. Um, so the only time it was broached at the Star was when Doug Smith, our, our legendary Raptors beat guy, um, was ill last year in the playoffs. Coincidentally, when the Raptors were coming to Washington, um, and so someone asked me, like, would I potentially step in and 
you know, just write the, write the game stories. Um, and I, I, I said I didn't want to because I just wanted to go to the games as a fan, you know, in a real emergency, of course, I, you know, I'd do whatever was needed. Um, but we had time, they had time to, you know, find someone else from Toronto. And I just thought like, you know what, like my life is, you know, my life is great, but, uh, you know, just my professional life is like pretty busy and stressful and the Raptors are, 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 you know, my, my hobby. It's how I have fun. Um, and so I don't want to turn that into work either. And so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say never, like it would be amazing to, you know, to cover the NBA, I think, but my hesitation is, um, it's, it's, it's fun to have this as something to do at night and just sit on the couch and, and cheer and be a fan. Um, you know, and during the day I can deal with, you know, all this political garbage and, and, you know, have something to, to turn to at seven thirty. And so to make that a job, I think would be a kind of personal loss. Um, but maybe, maybe one day, you know, I don't, I don't know what'll happen down the road. Yeah, I do totally respect that because honestly, this probably wouldn't happen in a one-off. But once you kind of see the underbelly of professional sports, it's kind of hard to be a fan, yeah. uh, like a true fan. So in that sense, maybe maybe keep your romanticism for as long as you can, um, or your escapism for as long as you can. Uh, yeah, I totally get that. All right, uh, last one. Uh, if you had to predict today, where what? If you had to predict today, what is the end result of the Toronto Raptors in 2018, 2019? I think they will lose in the finals <laughs> to the Golden State Warriors, which which I would Ooh. I would happily accept as long as uh, as long as they do not get completely slaughtered. Like I would take a a trip to the finals and like a, a competitive, even a five game series. Uh, I think that would be a successful season. Oh, if you're a Raptors fan, you take that every day. And you were at the Warriors Raptors game, correct? Yeah, that that came that was yeah. amazing. Like that was one of the yeah, five one, yeah, absolutely yeah, one yeah, of the uh, one of the one of the games of the year when Kevin Durant uh, decided to uh, be Jordan, Oscar Robertson, and Will Chamberlain combined, uh, and they still yeah. uh, they still ended up winning that game. Uh, Daniel Dale is the Toronto Stars Washington bureau chief. He is covering this current administration. And other stories in the United States, or I should say the President Donald Trump's administration. He previously spent four years as a Toronto City Hall reporter and bureau chief covering Rob Ford's administration. And if you are on Twitter, you are well aware of what uh, Daniel Dale does. And um, he's been invaluable for hundreds of thousands of um, of American uh, political watchers. Daniel, uh, you know I'm a huge admirer of yours, and I know your time is very busy so I really appreciate you coming on a sports media podcast today, and I wish you nothing but uh, the best of success and occasionally getting some sleep heading forward. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Daniel Dale of the Toronto Star and Austin Murphy, uh, my old Sports Illustrated colleague, for uh, two great conversations and uh, their honesty. Um, I really, really enjoyed this particular episode. I hope you did too. Uh, you can get previous uh, podcast via Apple Podcast and Stitcher um, from Renee Young of the WWE to, as I mentioned during the podcast, Chelsea James, Bruce Feldman, Jim Miller was the last guest where we sort of did a deep dive on ESPN in 2019. If you like this content, please uh, subscribe and leave us a review. That is how the podcast continues. Uh, again, thanks to my guest. Thanks to my ace producer, Lou Pellegrino. Thanks to Cadence 13. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.